Come Holy Spirit now, we pray, and make this word come alive in our hearing. Lord, this is this is the evangel. This is good news. And Lord, without the impression of your spirit on this word as it's preached and upon our hearts as we hear it, Lord, it will fall on deaf ears and it will be spoken by a tongue that, need, that has no life. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and empower your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you are probably aware by now, Christ Church, like lots of Christian churches, follows something we call the church calendar or the Christian calendar, which annually highlights critical moments in the life of Jesus. It's a way of annually recapitulating the life of Christ. And so right now, we're in the season after Epiphany. And that word Epiphany means the shining forth or the manifestation of something. For Christians, it means that the Sundays of this season focus on how God has manifested himself, how God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, last Sunday, the reading was from the Gospel of Matthew, and it was the account of Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River. We heard that last Sunday. The baptism of Jesus is always the lectionary reading for the Sunday right after Epiphany because in the baptism of Jesus, uh, the, there is an epiphany. There's something about who God is and what God is up to being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We talked about that last Sunday. And right here in today's reading from the Gospel of John, we are back at the Jordan River with John the baptizer and Jesus sometime after Jesus' baptism. And in these verses, John the baptizer grants us insight into who Jesus is and what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. John uses epiphany language, a manifestation language, in verse 29 when he exclaims this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning, just unpacking that one verse. There is so much in just that one verse that reveals so much about who God in Christ is and also reveals something about you and me. And so let's just dive right in. Now, if, if you have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you probably aren't aware of just how weird... That statement sounds, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a weird thing to say about anybody. If you don't have a Christian context, if you don't have an Old Testament context, it doesn't mean anything. What in the world does the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world mean? Well, if this statement is supposed to reveal something about the God who put on flesh and came among us in Jesus Christ, we're going to have to unravel that term. We're going to have to take it apart. And that very first phrase, the Lamb of God, literally leaves many commentators scratching their heads. As I was preparing for this sermon, I, I read several commentators, and they're just kind of like, we're not really sure exactly what this means. But I think if we want to understand this phrase, we have to go back to some key Old Testament passages, because that's certainly the context in which John's first hearers would have listened to him say that. <clears throat> 
Now, the first reference I want us to look at is really from Genesis chapter 22. Now, that chapter, Genesis chapter 22, you may remember, is the disturbing story of God calling upon Abraham to offer his one and only son. Abraham is in his old age. God has taken him out before this and showed him the stars of the heavens. And he said, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the heavens. They're going to be innumerable. And so in his old age, Abraham has been blessed with, Abraham and Sarah have been blessed with this child, Isaac, through whom that promise of many descendants is going to be fulfilled. And then sometime after that, God says, take your son, your only son, to a place that I will show you and offer him as a burnt offering to me. Very disturbing passage. He's going to offer his son as a sacrifice. But God stops Abraham from completing that action. And before that happens, though, on the way up to Mount Moriah, where the sacrifice is to occur, Isaac and Abraham have this exchange. Listen. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, this is how people talk in the Old Testament. Here I am, my son. I'm sure that's how it sounds in your house. He said, behold, the, he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, listen to these words, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide a lamb. And when they reached Mount Moriah and God has stopped the sacrifice of Isaac, that's exactly what happens. The scripture says in verse 13 of Genesis 22, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So John the Baptist's audience, who are familiar with this story, recognize that John was saying that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, would take the place of someone else, was going to be substituted for someone else as a sacrifice. But there's more. The, the offering, the sacrifice of a lamb, shows up again in a probably the critical passage in the history of Israel. Through a series of events, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, have moved to the country of Egypt. And while they are there, they have been made slaves by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they cried out to be delivered from slavery. And God, in response, raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. We know the story. But when Moses conveyed God's message to Pharaoh, let my people go, the king of Egypt hardened his heart and he refused. And as a result, God sent a series of plagues designed to convince the king to free the Israelites. And the final plague was that all the firstborn of Egypt would die. And in order not to be struck down with the Egyptians, the Israelites were given some instructions. And this is what they were given. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs. For yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. 
For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So what is John the baptizer saying then? John is saying that Jesus is like the Passover lamb that saved the Israelites from death and was the harbinger of their deliverance from, of, from slavery in Egypt. So the Passover lamb was God's way of saving them from slavery and death. Passover saves the Israelites from slavery and death. <clears throat> and here's the really amazing thing. If we think that maybe it's just a coincidence that John would call Jesus the lamb and that people would think that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Here's the amazing thing. The John who wrote this, the, the book we just read, John the, the gospel writer, not John the Baptist, he wants us to know that this is what is meant by the Lamb of God because John does something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not do with the chronology of Jesus' crucifixion. John shifts the time, and he does this on purpose. People say, well, doesn't John know what was going on? I mean, surely he's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know. Doesn't he know when Jesus is supposed to be crucified? John, of course, knows that. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, is that ancient people, and even us now as Christians, as we enter into the worldview of the Scriptures, looked at the world and the events in life typologically, that things had significance beyond themselves that often pointed to deeper truths. So something less lamb is a type of Christ. And so what does John John do in John chapter 19. John chapter 19 has Jesus in John's gospel being crucified at precisely the time the Passover lambs are being slain. It's no coincidence. We're meant to see that. And so in this wonderful biblical in imagery behind this phrase, the Lamb of God, this is what it's being said. He is the one God has provided who dies in our place, who dies in our place to save us from sin and death. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, which we will quote again this morning, St. Paul even picks up on this imagery, and he identifies Jesus <coughs> as our Passover. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In Jesus Christ, God is offering himself in our place as a sacrifice to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. Now listen, the second part of that verse is just as difficult for modern readers to understand and to untangle as the first bit. Who takes away the sin of the world? Exactly what is this sin of the world? Well, John, first of all, doesn't say sins. He says sin. And so in this context, sin, listen, sin is everything that alienates and separates us from the life-giving relationship with God and our neighbor that we were created for. Sin is that whole construct of everything that would separate us from God and our neighbor. Our rejection of God, our rebellion against God, our desire to be independent from God, all that is the root of sin. And all the great and small wickedness that we are capable of as human beings flow from the basic human rebellion against God, this God who loves us and calls us into being. And the results of us rejecting and rebelling against God are precisely what the Lamb saves us from, slavery and death. Because here's the deal, guys. You know, we tend to, I mean... 
This is the way I looked at it. You know, our rejection of God seems like the path to freedom. I'm going to do my own thing. But actually, when we do that, that sin becomes a power in our lives that controls and enslaves us. And Jesus said that in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And likewise, sin unleashes the power of death into human existence. And without Christ's self-offering and conquest of death in his resurrection, it would be utterly victorious. Death would be the final word in our lives. But the good news is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So now listen, all this, all this imagery piles up, and that leads to God's provision, his solution for the misery and devastation we've unleashed in creation by way of our sin. Again, this is linked to one of the lamb passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is something that Christians read particularly during uh, uh, like Good Friday services. It's one of the servant songs in Isaiah, and in that passage we hear some more lamb language, and so if I I'm one of John's original listeners. This is one of the things that's coming to my mind. All we like sheep, and if you are like me and you listen to Handel's Messiah over Christmas, you can't help but hear the, 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 all we like sheep. It sounds so fun, doesn't it? You know, have gone astray. You know, it's like that. That's what sheep do. (laughs) All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now listen, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John is saying, this is the one who carries our iniquities, who takes our sin upon himself. And because Jesus offers himself freely as a sacrifice for our sin, we are saved from God's righteous judgment. That's what's behind John's epiphany of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as Peter says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. And that's the good news in the nutshell. God loves us so much that he has offered his own life in our place that we might be liberated from the eternal consequences of slavery and death and judgment. What could possibly motivate Jesus to offer himself up like a lamb for the slaughter? Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, most of us in this room have heard that, all that I've said, many, many times. But there is a problem with everything that I have just said that makes all of that seem just like utter, irrelevant nonsense to modern, secular people. Here's the problem. We don't have any sense of sin as a cosmic offense against a living and holy God. Most people go through this world without any sense of any offense against a holy and living God. It is not present in their lives. C.S. Lewis encountered this problem when he was asked to give a series of talks about the Christian faith to members of the RAF, the Royal Air Force, back in World War II. When asked what was the biggest or the greatest barrier to communicating the Christian faith to that audience, this is what he said. C.S. Lewis writes, The greatest barrier I have met 
is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelum, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. The ancient person approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern person, listen, for the modern person, the roles are reversed. Humanity is the judge. God is in the dock. Humanity is the judge. God is the defendant. And so one of the great reasons modern Westerners reject all of this Jesus stuff is that in our minds, we stand above God and judge him according to our self-constructed and often self-contradictory standards. We erect an arbitrary, listen, we erect an arbitrary set of morals with zero transcendent authority, but are simply rooted in our current ethical preferences of the day. We may speak of a social contract if we're talking about what we think of as good and evil, but our little ethical framework has no power to judge something as ontologically, universally good or evil. It just comes down to what we prefer. In fact, Bertram Russell, in one of a, a famous, I think it was a, a famous debate uh, with a philosopher, I think the name was Cobbleston. It's uh, 1948 was when that debate was. And Bertram Russell was a great mathematician and also uh, a, a very outspoken uh, skeptic and atheist. And he was being asked, you know, how do you know good from evil? Well, he says, kind of like I know yellow from green. And his interlocutor re replied, well, but how do you know whether something is good or evil? He says, well, I, I, I guess by my feelings. And so my preference is how I know the difference. And so his debate partner said, well, in some countries, they love their neighbors, and in other countries, they eat them. Do you have a preference? <laughs> and really, that's what our framework of morality is. It's basically preference. Their only authority, our only authority, if we are modern Western people, is this, because we say so. We know good and evil because we say so. And based on our surreptitious, ersatz, ephemeral morality of the moment, we frog-march God into the courtroom of human opinion, and we judge him and find him wanting and guilty. And folks, we haven't lost our capacity for moral outrage. We've just unhitched it from reality and turned it against the ultimate source of all that is good. It's hard to see the amazing good news revealed when John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you think that there isn't any sin you have committed that isn't so bad that you yourself can't take care of by getting appropriately woke or getting on the right side of history by adopting the prevailing ideology embraced by the elites in the media and in the academy. But the reality that we see in this passage of Scripture 
The coming of Jesus to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The reality is that as far as ultimate truth is concerned, the human condition apart from God is far graver than any amount of virtue posturing can deal with. And if we are honest with ourselves as the consequences of our rebellion against God and our self-directed living pile up, the shattered relationships and the broken families, the physical and mental toll, the financial chaos, the fear of death, and even the gnawing possibility that there may be a reckoning for our lives beyond the grave, as these consequences begin to pile up, and if we don't harden our heart, we recognize that we cannot fix our problems ourselves. And just maybe in that moment, or maybe even this morning, we will entertain the possibility that all that John has told us is true. And we will turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we will ask, can you really be what I am seeking? Can you really be the solution to the chaos and emptiness and even guilt? And in that moment, Jesus responds as he did to those first inquirers, Come and see. As Audrey West says, if you want to know the word made flesh, come and see Jesus. If you want to know what love is like, come and see Jesus. If you want to experience God's glory, to be filled with bread that never perishes, to quench your thirst with living water, to be born again, to abide in love, to behold the light of the world, to experience the way, the truth, and the life, and to enter into life everlasting. If you want to know God, come and see Jesus. Lord, where are you abiding? And Jesus said, come and see. Thank you, God, for the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I pray first of all that you would give us a gift by your Holy Spirit in this place right now that only the Holy Spirit can give. It is a work of grace, and that is you would convict us of sin, that you in the power of your Spirit would reveal to us our guilt and the magnitude of what that means. And that, Lord, in that moment, you would also reveal to us that you are the Lamb of God whose work of suffering and love was so great that it doesn't just deal with my sin, but it deals with the sin of the whole world. Thank you for making provision. Thank you for freeing me from slavery, from death, and from judgment. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lamb of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand as we offer up.